Um, if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this morning we are in, we will begin in verse 18 and continue through the end of this chapter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. This is the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, sub having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word, uh, we may know the truth. We may be encouraged in times of difficulty, in times where we might feel that there is no purpose, there is no meaning to our life. Lord, and we thank you for Peter's words that are meant to set our gaze on you, Jesus, and remind us that there is a purpose, that we do have a meaning in this life. And Lord, as I preach your word, as we seek to uncover these truths, Lord, may the Spirit of God be at work in us. May the deep crevices, the engraved patterns of our life that are sinful, the patterns of our brain, the habits that you do not desire for us to have, may they be transformed, may they be changed, God. May your word renew us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Did you know, did you know that the iPhone was invented only 12 years ago? Did you know that Netflix started streaming its first show only 12 years ago? Did you know that now Netflix is uh, nearly half of U.S. households have a Netflix account, and the other half are just borrowing it from their friends? <laughs> Did you know that Disney's first movie... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, was released in 1938, and that Disneyland was built in 1955. Did you know that the first TV was sold in the 30s? It was 90 years ago. Did you know that the first NFL game was in 1939, and the first NBA game was 1946? Some of you might wonder, what was the purpose and meaning of life before the 1930s? <laughs> How did the world survive without these things for thousands of years? What did people do? Okay, We live in a time where there is so much to see, 
so much to try. There is so much that we still need to do. Entertainment, shows, travel, food, drink, shopping, careers, sports, sex, porn, drugs for the rich and poor. The possibilities are endless. As a society, we are the busiest we have ever been. There is so much more to see and so much more to do, no matter how much more we see and do. We've all got bucket lists. We've all got those hashtag goals, okay? There is so much that we can try. We are a culture that is consumed with accomplishments and a culture that's consumed with seeking pleasure. And yet, all around us, we see people who have lost purpose. People with no sense of belonging. People who are struggling to find their identities. With the amount of distractions that we have, with thousands of opportunities for fun and entertainment and interesting things to pursue, with promise of happiness and joy, why are we struggling so much? Since the year 2000 till now, suicide rates have gone up by 30%. For young adults up to mid-30s, suicide is the, is the second leading cause of death in the United States. Okay? Nearly one-fifth of our population struggles with depression or a form of anxiety. There are many reasons why this is taking place, but no doubt one of the greatest reasons why we have these struggles is because so many lose interest in continuing to live. There is a loss of meaning. There is a loss of purpose all around us. As humans, we were created in the image of God. And loss of purpose, loss of meaning, was not part of God's original design, okay? God made us with a purpose, he made us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Okay, that phrase right there encapsulates what God created us to do. Okay, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Okay, those, uh, those receptors, uh, what do you, what's that word, that hormone um, that's released, um, dopamine. Okay, it's not the devil's invention, it's God's invention. And it is to be released when we enjoy God. What happened? We know that something broke. And we know as Christians that it broke in the garden when sin entered creation through Adam's disobedience. And sin marred God's design. Sin corrupted God's design. And so from that point on, in search of purpose, in search of meaning, Humanity is looking in all the wrong places. Sin has marred humanity to such a point that we are allergic to the only remedy that can save us. John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is the evil. That is the, pow that is the power of evil. That is the power of sin that blinds individuals 
from seeing the salvation that God brings to them, the salvation that their creator is offering to them. Instead of coming to God, God says people have loved darkness. They are wasting their life indulging and enjoying darkness and evil, which is sure to leave you broken. So in our study through 1 Peter, uh, this book, as we know, has been written to the newly formed churches in Asia Minor. Uh, these people, just like the rest of the world, they lived in darkness. But the grace of God now has saved them, and they are living in the light of the gospel. Okay? Through Jesus, they are now reconciled to their creator God which means they found purpose, they found meaning, they found a reason, the reason that they were created for. And through this letter, Peter's continually reminding them, and he is reminding us, that the way we display, the way we show how we glorify God, the way we display that we belong to God and His kingdom, is by being a people that abandon darkness, that run away from darkness, being a people that strive for holiness. We are a people who are obedient to our God and we are zealous for good works. That is how we display glory to God. But in response to this new life, as these new Christians are seeking to engage their culture, okay, as they seek to display the light of the gospel in their to their neighbors, to their co-workers, to their friends, to their spouses, the response is opposition. The response is persecution. And so they are discouraged. They are wondering, is this really our purpose? Is this really what God has intended it for us? Why are we suffering when we are doing good? What is the point of all our efforts and good work if it's met with slander and evil? They're discouraged. And so Peter is writing to these new Christians, and he seeks to encourage them in their faith and in their new life. And as he does that, what he does not do is he does not put their faith, he does not put their hope in anything of this world. He doesn't tell them, and he doesn't encourage them to put their trust in their abilities. He, he doesn't tell them to put their trust in their accomplishments or careers or the possessions that they have. He doesn't tell them to trust their relationships. Also, Peter doesn't give them a formula of how to escape suffering from this earth. Okay? He doesn't give them five steps to keep you out of persecution. We do not find that in here. But throughout this letter, what Peter does do is he draws our attention to the eternal, to the transcendent. He anchors them in something that is completely out of this world. He reminds them of the hope that they have in Christ. Now, we live in a time of religious liberty and peace. Very few Christians in the history of the world had the liberty that we do have today. Very few Christians today in America suffer for their faith. As a Christian, 
if you are a kind, if you are a respectable person, if you do good deeds, before anyone would say that you are a Christian, they would just say you're a good person. Okay? They would, that's how they would define you. It's hard for us to imagine the struggle of the persecuted church. It's hard for us to understand the desperate situation of these Christians in Asia Minor. Okay? It's hard for us to see how, how are these words so important to them? Why are these words so life-giving to them? And to kind of get a taste of what these Christians went through, I, just, I was just thinking, like, how? How can we uh, begin to think like those Christians thought? And I just want to challenge you to try something. Try something this week, this month. Um, what if we infused in our American Christianity a little bit of urgency for the lost, okay? What if we took the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, outside of these four walls? What if we took that message beyond our Christian circles? Just think of the few people that you have in your life on a regular basis who are not Christians. Maybe it's someone at work, at school, coffee shop that you regularly go to, a neighbor, okay? And let's say you wake up one day with a sense of compassion and love towards this person, okay? Because even though, you know, even though they're a nice person, you know that they are lost in darkness. They do not know Christ. They do not know their creator. And so you decide to take on the opportunity and share the gospel with them. You are inviting them to come to the light. As you are evangelizing to them, you are inviting them to eternal salvation. You are telling them about a life that is full of meaning and purpose. You are inviting them to hope beyond career and entertainment. You are inviting them to believe in the gospel and have peace with God, their creator. But that invitation means that you have to tell them that up to this point, they are living their life in opposition to God. The reason why they need salvation, the reason why they need Jesus is because they have sinned. They have violated God's command. And that the righteous and just God is coming to punish the wicked in eternal hell. And unless they repent of their sin and believe in Christ, who paid for their sin, they will perish. How do you think these people in your life, who you love, but who are still living in the darkness, how do you think they're going to respond to this message? I bet that if you do this to at least one person a week, one person a month, you will encounter persecution real quick. Nobody wants to hear they are wrong. Nobody wants to hear that they are sinners. Nobody wants to hear that their creator does not approve of their life. And it's really sad that in America, we have to think of this hypothetically. Okay? Very little of us practice this. I know a few of you that do. Uh, Nathan King, Dr. Nate, um, he has a practice here in Kona. He brings the gospel to every one of his patients. He loses a lot of patients and he doesn't care. 
He brings the gospel to them. I'm, I'm jealous of his boldness and his compassion for the lost. But to understand our text, we have to understand the reality of the early church. Evangelism was a part of their daily life. Unlike us, they actually evangelized. That's why the, grew, the church grew so rapidly. There was a deep understanding, a deep urgency of the coming judgment of God who will, who, who will punish the wicked. That truth compelled them to preach the good news of the gospel with urgency and compassion, knowing that their friends, their family, their co-workers will perish without Christ. And if we were passionate about taking the gospel beyond these walls, we would inevitably, just like them, encounter, encounter slander, resentment, and evil. In the call to being, to being zealous for what is good, the greatest good that we can do is to tell our neighbors how to escape the coming judgment. And in our text this morning, Peter is still continuing on the thought where he left us off last week, the thought of being zealous for good works. His desire is to encourage these Christians. He desires to breathe life into them. He's telling them, even though you might not see the purpose, you might not see the, the meaning of, of, of you continuing to do good, he says it matters. Continue pressing on. I just want to begin in verse 17. Um, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the will, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so continuing on in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So in verse 17, we read that it is better to do good and suffer for it. Okay, he's saying that there's a, there is a purpose, there's a meaning. It's good to suffer for doing good. You're not wasting your life. And in verse 18, Peter begins to give us reasons why, why they are not wasting their life by doing good. Okay, he's telling them why it's good to suffer. He begins with the word for, for Christ, or we can say because Christ, okay? And so for the next few, for the next remaining of the sermon, I just want to give us the four reasons that Peter is giving us why we should continue to do good that God has set before us, even if it threatens our well-being. And the first reason, the first uh, thing that Peter puts our attention on is Christ, okay? He says, he says to the Christian who is suffering, he says, look to Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who did good and suffered for it. First off, he did not have any evil. He never broke the law. Jesus was sinless. What was the reason for Christ to suffer if he's perfect? Verse 18 tells us that he was righteous. 
So first, he, he was sinless. He was perfect. Secondly, his life was a definition of doing good. Through his whole ministry, Jesus was doing good. Wedding ran out of wine. He created more. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out the oppressed. He, he cast out the demons out of the oppressed. He fed the hungry crowds. He befriended those who were outcasts. He warned of the coming judgment of God and called them to repent and come to him for salvation. Yet in return for his good, he was always under scrutiny and threat. He was being accused of blasphemy. The religious leaders sought to kill him and stone him so many times that he had to escape neighboring, to neighboring towns. So to the Christian then and to the Christian now, Peter is saying, look at the life of Jesus. Your leader, being perfect, deserving no wrongdoing, being uh, the definition of ultimate good, like doing so much good deeds, experienced the same affliction. Yet we were criminals. We are criminals. We were condemned to death for unrighteousness and sin. Our punishment is well-deserved, okay? That's in comparison to Christ. Like, we can take some, some heat. Our sin, it separated us from God completely. There was no way for us to get to God. We dwelt in darkness. We hated the light. The chasm between us and God was deep. Yet Christ displayed the greatest good by taking our place of judgment for the purpose of bringing us to God. Christ reconciled us to our Creator. He brought us back to where we belong. Christ gave sinners purpose and meaning. Okay, and here's the beautiful truth. Peter says that, that, that this, this sacrifice that Christ has done was once. And this word in Greek, uh, the word once means hapax. And the definition of that word is one time only event without any need of repetition. That one event was enough to pay for all of our past, present, and future sin and for eternity to secure our access to God, our standing before God. There is no need for Christ to continue to pay for our sin. When he said it's finished, the work was done and it was completed. So for a Christian who is suffering injustice for doing good, this was encouraging because it was a reminder that Christ has already accomplished and achieved for them what their purpose and their meaning. Why fear death? Why fear those who can harm your body but cannot touch your soul? They knew that no matter what happened to them, even death, they are eternally secured with Christ. That's what Christ has accomplished for them. Secondly, um, as they are looking to their leader, as they're looking to Christ, they see someone who, through suffering,
They're looking at a leader who experienced the same suffering. God wasn't asking them to do something ridiculous. God wasn't asking them to do something he hasn't went through. He's, Peter's pointing their attention on Christ, who boldly and humbly went through suffering and death himself. In verse 18, we read that Christ did not remain dead, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Other translations say he was quickened by the Spirit. The Spirit of God raised Christ from the dead, proving that Christ's work was accomplished and accepted by the Father. So Peter is saying, look to your leader. Look to the one who was perfectly good, did not deserve any did not deserve any suffering, yet he did it. He went through it to the point of death. And not only that, but he has now secured your, uh, your salvation, your standing before God. All right, verse 19. Some of you can't wait for me to jump into this verse. Some of you came to church because you wanted to hear this verse explained. For those of you who don't know, verse 19 and 20 are some of the most obscure and unclear verses in the New Testament, specifically verse 19. There's a lot of speculation, explanation of these verses. Uh, many theologians offer many of their uh, explanations. And what I'll do this morning, I'm just going to go through three most popular opinions and tell you which one I'm most inclined to, and the one that you should be most inclined to. <laughs> and by the way, none of these, none of these explanations are totally bulletproof, okay? Like, none of these. So let's read these verses first. So he was quickened, he was, he, verse 18, he was raised by the Spirit, made alive in the Spirit, and then he continues to say, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I've spent way too much time this past week researching this, this, this text. Um, but the question is, like, who, who are these spirits, and when did Christ preach to them? Okay? Um, what we're going to go through right now is very technical, so hold on. Um, this doesn't affect much. This, if, you don't, if you don't get it, it doesn't mean that you're not saved, okay? Um, this, doesn't, this is a very secondary thing. It, you know, if you don't get it, it's fine. If you need a bathroom break, this is the time to go, okay? This is your chance. Um, so first, first, the first opinion. Some say that between Christ's death and his resurrection, Christ went to a place where the dead spirits were held. He went to Sheol. He went to Hades. And he preached to the spirits who were real embodied people at one time, at the time of Noah. Okay? He preached to these spirits in Sheol, in Hades. Okay? It's a very simple and condensed version of this, of this understanding. You know, there's a lot more to it. Um, and I'm not going to argue, this morning I'm not going to argue if Christ went to Sheol or he didn't. But I'd like to say that verse 19 is post-resurrection. Peter just said that Christ has been made alive by the Spirit. Okay, so 
I don't see how this text can prove that Christ went to Sheol between his death and resurrection. Okay, Peter just finished saying that he's resurrected. And as we shall see, why, why would Christ need to preach to these spirits if they have already heard the message, if they have already been preached to by Noah? Okay, the Bible's clear. There is no second chance. After you die, that is it. You have no second chance in hell. So that's the first version. The second version says that Christ, through his resurrection, displayed victory over the evil forces, over the powers of darkness. And so at some point after the resurrection, he went and he proclaimed his power to them. Okay? Now, we don't argue that Christ has displayed power over the evil forces. Okay? It's true. But this version, this version of explaining these verses fails to make the connection between these evil spirits, these, these spiritual forces of darkness, and this, the, the people that lived in time of Noah. It fails to, uh, to, to make that connection real well. And again, these are very condensed. There's books written about this stuff. And the last version um, is this, simply put. Before I explain it, I'm just going to state it to you. Christ proclaimed, Christ preached to these now spirits who were at one point actual embodied souls that lived in the time of Noah, and he preached to them through Noah. Okay? Christ's work was at, Christ's spirit was at work as Noah preached. Okay? And let me show you how we get here. Um, in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read, Concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Spirit of God was at work from the beginning, okay? He was at work through his messengers, through his prophets of old. And Noah was one of these guys through whom Christ's Spirit was revealing the coming destruction by water. Noah received a revelation that the judgment is coming and that he needs to build an ark. Okay? This revelation, this knowledge came to Noah not because he just, he didn't just come on it on his own. It came to him by Christ's Spirit. Secondly, uh, 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness he proclaimed, he heralded the judgment that was to come, okay? So the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 11, was at work in Noah. And through 2 Peter, we see that Noah preached to these people around him. He preached of the coming judgment. So with all that in mind, let's go back to our verse we see that the Spirit of God resurrected Christ. He made him alive. And by that same Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And I love how NASB translates this. It adds the word now in there. They say, he went and proclaimed to the spirits who are now in prison. Okay? At one point, they were not in prison. 
They were real people that lived in the time of Noah. Okay? They heard the preaching of Christ through Noah, but now they are spirits in prison. Okay? I hope that sheds some light to you about verse 19. Um, the thing is, it doesn't, this, no matter how you understand, it doesn't interfere with the message that Peter is trying to get across to us. Okay? Um, a commentary that's really helpful to understand this um, is Edmund Clowney's commentary on 1 Peter, Edmund Clowney. Um, that commentary has been an essential tool for all of us guys as we prepare our messages in 1 Peter. And so, um, back to our main point. We're not speculating anymore now. I have to say this. Bathroom breaks are over. And so, um, we're, Peter, we're in a place where Peter is giving us reasons why we should continue to do good, even if it means suffering. Okay? So, he first puts our attention on Christ. And now, secondly, Peter is putting our attention on Noah. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. Why Noah? Why bring Noah at this time? Why bring uh, these, these people that disobeyed God? And Peter brings this up because there's so many parallels between what happened then and what is happening now, I want to read to you out of uh, Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart were, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created for, from the face of the land. Man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so what's happening? Corruption and evil has reached a boiling point, okay? And God reveals to Noah that he will destroy the earth, he will destroy people, and he gives Noah instructions how to escape that judgment. He gives him instructions to, to build an ark. So I want to just go with you through the parallels between Noah and the Christians to whom Peter is writing to and us. Okay? So the first parallel is Noah is living in the same, and bro same broken and sinful, corrupt world as we do. As evil is around us, so as evil was around him. God's wrath was revealed against all evil, okay? And the penalty for their sin came through the flood. Just like right now, God's wrath is revealed against evil and his judgment is coming. There's a pending judgment then, there's a pending judgment now. Okay, the next. God called Noah. Okay, God called Noah... God called us. By his grace, he made Noah righteous. By his grace, he made us righteous. God had prepared good works for Noah to walk in. He gave him a purpose. He gave him meaning. He gave him a job. And that purpose was to build an ark and to preach of the coming judgment, the salvation, and that the salvation was through the ark. So, 
God gave us a calling. He is calling us to be zealous for good works and to proclaim the coming judgment and salvation through Christ. Noah was for sure mocked and persecuted for building a pointless monster boat in the middle of nowhere, okay? Noah was considered a crazy for his actions and for his message. A flood, salvation through that boat, does that sound familiar? Christians are mocked for living a life with another reality in mind. We live as though we do not belong here. We live as though we belong to a different kingdom, and we bet our whole life on it. The Spirit of Christ was at work through Noah's preaching, proclaiming of the coming disaster. The Spirit of God is at work through his church, proclaiming the coming judgment and salvation through Christ. And so by bringing Noah up, Peter is saying, the challenges that you face, well, guess what? It happened before. Reflect on Noah. To the Christian, then it would seem that darkness is closing in. Every good deed that they are doing is undermined. It's trampled on. What is the point in all of our attempts to advance the gospel, to advance God's kingdom, we are met with hostility and evil. They had a real temptation to abandon this, to lose hope. And Peter is pointing them to a time where Noah, having a warning of 120 years before the flood, with all of his preaching, with all of God's patience waiting 120 years, and the only people that were saved was his immediate family, okay? Not much fruit from this mission trip. 120 years and not a single soul. Remember, they all spoke one language. There was no linguistical barriers then. And no one believed him. Now that's darkness closing in. How did it feel? Imagine, 120 years you're proclaiming one message you're building a boat in the middle of nowhere. You're being called a crazy lunatic. And then God was faithful to his promise. The flood did come. And Peter says that eight were brought through safely. It didn't matter what the majority said. It didn't matter that all facts stacked against the flood. God was true to his promise, and the judgment came. So Christian then, and Christian now, the pressure is on you to abandon your faith. The pressure is on you to abandon hope. The world will stack all sorts of facts against you. At times it will seem as though darkness is closing in, and no one believes you. Peter says, look to Noah. Be encouraged by brother Noah. He went through it all. He preached for 120 years. He was committed to what God has called him for 120 years without any fruit. And now, Hebrews 11, Noah is named among men of faith. We read, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes 
by faith. Struggling Christian, if you think that this, your faith, your commitment to Christ has no hope, has no purpose, has no meaning, look to Christ. Look to Noah. And the next thing that Peter puts in front of us is baptism. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wish we had more time to spend on this topic, but Peter, um, I'm just going to run through this real quick. Um, Peter, again, is drawing parallels. He's drawing correlations between uh, the believer's baptism and what happened to Noah. Okay? Our baptism corresponds, it correlates with a great flood. Because the very, the very same water that judged the world and cleansed the world of evil was the water through which Noah was physically saved. It's the water that kept the ark afloat. So baptism, symbolizing the washing of our sin, symbolizing, it also symbolizes our salvation from the judgment uh, to come through Jesus Christ. And before we can think that it's the actual act of baptism that saves us, Peter quickly tells us that it's not just the dunking in the water. It's not the physical removal of dirt from you that saves you. But baptism represents a reality that has already taken place in the soul of a believer. The reality that you have escaped judgment and you have experienced a spiritual washing of your sin and Jesus Christ is your Lord. And you can now stand before God with a good and clean conscience because you have been transformed in your inner being. So Christian, look to your leader Jesus. Christian, look to Noah. And Christian, look at your own testimony. Look at the work that God has done in your life. Baptism is a testament that God is at work. You were under condemnation. You were under the judgment of God, yet God has brought you out of darkness into his light, and you can stand before him with a clean conscience, and baptism proclaims that. And lastly, Peter, again in verse 22, sets our gaze on Christ. And this time, Christ is not a suffering servant, but he is resurrected and he's victorious. Verse 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? Christ's enemies were many. At times, everyone would abandon him. All darkness and spiritual forces of the enemy rose against him. It, seems, it seemed as though Jesus' mission utterly failed. All of his good works, all of his sacrifices was for nothing. And yet he arose victorious. And now all his enemies are defeated under his feet. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father in glory. And church, listen. All power... All authority is his. The head of the church, the head of this church, is seated at the right hand of God. And he sees your suffering. He sees your every good deed that goes unnoticed. 
He sees all the mocking. He sees all the evil that is done against you. And he says, you are mine. I secured you with my blood. Hold on. Keep up the good fight. My word, my plan will be accomplished no matter what the enemy says, no matter what the world tells you. And so if you are not a believer, or if you are a Christian for all the wrong reasons, if you are expecting from God something he has never promised, okay, the one thing that we know for sure he promises you is that you will suffer for doing good. If you're a Christian for, for the wrong reasons, I just want to tell you that the king of the universe is coming. You will give an account for all of your evil deeds. He will demand payment for sin. And you are in major debt to him. That debt requires that you pay for eternity in hell. But the good news is that the perfect sacrifice was made. Christ went to the cross. His blood paid the penalty for sin. So believe in him. Trust in him as your Lord. Repent of your sin. Abandon darkness and he will save you into his light and make you a child forever secure in his arms. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for difficult texts like this. Uh, we thank you that your word just sets the right expectation for us. You don't promise us money, success, careers, Lord, but you promise that as we live in this world, as we work, as we uh, eat, as we engage our culture, if we are true to the gospel, if we are zealous for good works, we will encounter persecution, we will encounter suffering. And Lord, we thank you for the images that you draw to us from your scripture. Father, we thank you for the hope that you give to us. And we thank you, Lord, that those who know you, those who are Christians, those who are yours, that hope is not outside of us, but that hope is within us, Lord. We thank you for that. And Father, I just want to pray for those who do not know you, for those who have not experienced your powerful saving work, Lord. May they see their darkness. May they see their sin, Father, and even more, may they see your love, may they see your grace, and may they see your light and run to you, Father, for you will accept them with open arms. Father, move amongst the hearts of the people who don't know you and save them by your grace, Lord. Father, we just thank you for your church. We thank you that you are the head of your church. You're the head of this church and no good deed goes unnoticed, Lord. Even if our life seems pointless, meaningless, if we are found in you, it has purpose. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you give us meaning and you give us purpose. Help us to glorify you and find meaning in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.